So, uh, if I can get your attention, let's, if you got your Bible with you, flip it open, if you wouldn't mind, to Matthew 16. So, if you're still finding your way through, ooh, wow, see, it's even shrink-wrapped for Evan, so we're definitely finding our way around. So, if you're still finding your way around, Matthew's in the New Testament, it's actually the first book of the New Testament, which is about the last fifth of the Bible, if you don't know that. And if you got the Bible that everybody else uses and you're at that page, maybe you could shout it out. 41 in the New Testament. Matthew 16. So Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, if, if you can find it with me. Page 41, if it's in the Bibles that we gave you. You there? Great. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? That's where the question that we're at table comes from. It's a rather bizarre question to ask, quite honestly. Most of us wouldn't waste time asking people, so what does the crowd say about me? That would be a question of an egomaniac, right? <laughs> so what's everybody saying? And yet Jesus asks this question. Who do people say that I am? So, at our tables and discussion, what is either your own understanding or what is it that you hear? Maybe it's family members, maybe it's friends, maybe it's co-workers. I would argue that um, that question, which is on the wall, just might be the most important question you will ever answer. So, let's start with asking what other people say about him. So, who is Jesus and why? This is the audience participation part. <laughs> All of a sudden, we're chewing. Yeah. Good person or a teacher, okay? Why? What he says is worthwhile to learn from. You imagine me standing up at Mass on Sunday saying, hey, you know, like, so I'm the new pastor. I am delighted to be here. Uh, Archbishop sent me here. Uh, got a couple of things I want to say to you. First of all, I just want to let you know that um, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any life in you. At which point you all go, uh, I think we're going to go down the street. <laughs> Right? Because in case you're not familiar yet with the Gospels, Jesus said those words. Okay, what else? Yeah. Really significant prophet. And the reason for that is? Small little problem. Yeah, everything but the whole Son of God thing. Um, no, that... Uh, what do you mean when you say, don't they believe? What do you mean? Yeah, so the Jewish people would... Um, uh, it's even even to say that is uh, confusing at times, right? That's like saying Protestants believe X. That's a dangerous thing to say, right? So um, some Jewish brothers and sisters would believe um, that there is, in fact, a Messiah to come mm -hmm. and that he has not yet come and that Jesus was not him. Um, but they wouldn't believe that he was a prophet. They would believe he was a false prophet because he claimed to be that Messiah. 
What else? Ah, okay. So people who believe he's a, believe he's a myth, or okay, a, and why? No, no being, no entity can do all of the things that do. Okay. So nobody could do what Jesus had done. Therefore, he must be a myth. Of course, the other option is it would only be logical that if, in fact, God is real and he became a man, he would do things that nobody else could do. That's an option as well. Okay. Other things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jesus was an old guy that old people thought was really important. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Really good guy. Why would they say he's a really good guy? Okay. All right. Yeah, because so I think it's Al Cresta who I heard him say one time. Um, he he kind of summarized the millennials and under as saying about Christianity something to the effect of their response to Christianity is really nothing to see there. Move along. which, quite honestly, is an indictment on those of us who are Christians. That's what that is. Because we, we just don't look any different. So, okay, thank you. Someone said something over here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Islam gets a little bit more confusing because um, Islam would would um, would say that the Gospels are corrupt uh, and that Jesus, um, it, it, this, this gets confusing, either um, didn't die on the cross or that God changed Judas to look like Jesus, Jesus and they crucified Judas. And therefore, when Jesus shows himself to the apostles, he didn't rise from the dead. He was just never crucified, right? Okay? The Quran becomes difficult to read at times. Yeah. Oh, you know the answer. Oh, no, you don't know the answer. You have an answer. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so kind of the, the idea that all religions are the same, they all offer the same thing, they all espouse the same thing, they're all asking for the same thing, more or less, yeah. Okay, great. So here's what we want to do tonight. I, I want The next two weeks, um, next week you're going to get, I think, I think you're going to get Father Dave, because I think I'm in Kansas City. So next week Father Dave's going to talk, and this week we're going to set it up. We want to look at the person of Jesus these next two weeks. Here's what we want to do. Um, we want to do something which most people don't seem to do when they talk about faith. We want to, be, we want to try to be intellectually honest. So it's not possible that all religions are the same because all religions don't claim to be the same. And Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and Confucius and on and on and on don't say the same things. That just reveals um, ignorance. But I don't say that to condemn anybody. It, it's just a truth, right? It's, um, to read the Gospels is to not encounter anybody like anybody else. I think it's Peter Kraft, who we're going to look at a little bit here in a second. He says, there's only been three people who have provoked the question, um, what are you? Like, they don't look at me and go, what are you? Well, at least most people don't. Like, <laughs> my, my siblings do. But, um, but Jesus provoked that response. Like, what are you? That's why when, you, when Jesus asks this question, that's what he's asking. So there's something absolutely unique. And if, and if you don't know, I have something that maybe I'll make available. I'll try to copy it for you for next week. Um, 
I'll have Father Dave hand it out. Um, if you don't know how you, how different the religions are, it, which is not which would not be surprising, right? Because be, because to begin to talk like this, we, we quickly do two things. Here's what we do: we we um, confuse objectivity and subjectivity. So we start talking about somebody of any other faith, and we go, well, "What are you saying about me?" And the response is, "Actually, I'm not saying anything about you. We're just trying to look at something objectively." We're trying to look at Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, uh, Taoism, whatever. So we, we don't seem to be able to hold in distinction an objective discussion from uh, a, an attack on a person subjectively. That's where we've become right now. And, and in our culture right now, which is just ratcheting up the rhetoric and the, la the lack of civility and the way we talk to each other, it's just escalating. Am I right? Does it resonate with you? So, so we start talking about religion and people say, so, so does that mean everybody's not Catholic is going to hell? Like, that's amazing how quick that question's asked. It's like, uh, we're not even going there. <laughs> we're just trying to look at either Christianity or Catholicism and to examine it and to examine the claims. Because we looked last week at faith and what faith is, right? Faith is God's work in me to which I respond. That's the easiest way I know how to describe it. His work is, first of all, it's the work that he's done in becoming man and going to the cross, but it's also the work of the Holy Spirit that enables me to see who Jesus is, to understand who he is. The response he's looking for is faith, my, my surrender. But, but faith and surrender is not unreasonable or illogical. So God gave me a mind for a reason. And he gave you a mind for a reason. So like my appetite, which is rather ravenous right now, wants food. Okay? It will get some soon. My mind has an appetite. It wants truth. So Pope John Paul II, um, in a great letter that he wrote some years ago called Faith and Reason, uh, talked about how one of the things that's unique about the human person is we ask questions. Your dog doesn't ask questions. It begs. All right? We ask questions because we want to know. And we want to know because we want to know truth. That's why we ask. No one wants to be lied to. No one wants to be deceived. We might lie to people and deceive people, but we don't ourselves want to be lied to or deceived. So we ask questions, we want to know, and we want to know ultimately because we want to surrender ourselves. Like, that's how the human person really finds happiness, by surrendering. Could be on a human level in friendship or in marriage, and on a, in a level of us and God, it's in surrendering ourselves to God. Does that make sense? We can... We can argue some of those things later maybe, but that's, that's kind of what John Paul says. The reason for saying that is just because the mind which has an appetite for truth, the highest of truths would be religious truth. Is there a God or isn't there? Has he said anything to us or hasn't he? Has he revealed to us how to find happiness or not? Has he given us answers as to what happens when we die? If anything, has he provided an explanation for us as to why things are so obviously bad? Has he given us any inkling of understanding as to why there's suffering and what possible good could come out of it? These are the, these are the questions that, that we all ask eventually. And those are religious questions. Science cannot answer those questions. Science is very important, but it cannot answer those questions. So, religious truth then, if there is such a thing, is of the highest kind. But we want to try to figure that out if there, if there are reasons to surrender ourselves to Jesus and to the Father that he is constantly pointing to. With me? Okay. That's why we want to do this.
So let, let me show you, um, if I can, I want to draw on um, the work of C.S. Lewis in a particular way tonight. Because again, we want to we do this because, as I mentioned last, white, last week, and we're going to keep saying this, to be a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice. To be a Christian, which, is, which means to be a disciple, and to be a disciple means that um, I am striving to bring my life under the lordship of Jesus. That's how we defined disciple last week. So to do that um, can only come from encountering someone, because last week we looked at the cost of discipleship, and we said that was a rather severe cost. What's God want? Everything. <laughs> Why would I give him everything? Who is this God who's asking for everything? Is he a tyrant? Is he a cruel judge? Is he sitting up there with a calculator and an abacus? Or is he a loving father? So who is this God who's inviting a response from me? That's what we want to look at. And the, the place we're going to encounter the Lord in a unique way right now is in the scriptures. And in the scriptures is where Jesus speaks of himself. Because that's the text, right? Especially the Gospels. That's, that's where we really want to look. So, I want to look at, uh, at who Jesus is. We want to look next week a little bit more um, concretely at what it is that he says about himself. Tonight, I want to actually um, give what I think is increasingly an important place to start, especially given what's going on in younger people. So, Next week, we'll look a little, a little bit more in detail at the things that Jesus says. And those things will create what C.S. Lewis, who I mentioned last week, some of you are familiar with him, some of you may not be. Lewis was uh, an Englishman, um, a very uh, devout atheist, we could say, who had a massive conversion in his life, um, teacher at uh, Cambridge and Oxford, and then became, you know, arguably the most popular and well-read Christian author of the 20th century. Some of you have seen his books. He's written children's stories. He's written stuff for adults. Uh, he has a book called Mere Christianity, um, which if you're not familiar with, I would highly recommend. It's small, um, r somewhat easy to read, although he becomes a little bit denser. In um, Mere Christianity and in some other things that are based on it, um, Lewis creates this trilemma that based on what Jesus says, you've got three options. And the three options are either he's either the Lord, he's a liar, or he's a lunatic because he's claiming to be God. That's the reason. So he either is who he's claiming to be, which means he's Lord. He thinks he is who he's claiming to be, but he's not, which means he's nuts. Or he knows he's not who he's claiming to be, but he's telling you he is. None of those allow for the option of a good man. Or a prophet. Or a nice guy. So here's how Lewis, uh, I'll, I'll direct your, I, I always find it easier to just, as opposed to listen to a talking head, let's look at this. No, we don't have to look at me either. So here's Lewis. So I usually find that some form of the Either God or bad man can be used in, in trying to reason. That's what, that's what we want to try to do here. We want to use our intellect and our reason to look at Scripture and at the claims of Jesus. So much like we've just said, as we walked around, the majority of them start with the idea of the great human teacher who was deified by his superstitious followers. It must be pointed out how very difficult this is among Jews and how different to anything that happened with Plato, Confucius, Buddha, or Muhammad. The Lord's own words and claims, of which many are quite ignorant, must be forced home. That last little sentence there is worth hanging on to. Unfortunately, one of the tragedies of modern culture is that we've become a biblically illiterate culture. Joe can talk to this, to his, you know, she was a professor of English at EMU. And for most of the history of literature, you would be able to draw upon biblical imagery. And people would know what you were talking about. Not anymore. We're a biblically illiterate culture. 
increasingly so by the hour, it seems. And so the only, the only way people could come to uh, make a statement that Jesus is just like every other religious teacher or whatever is simply because they just don't know what he's said. Lewis goes on. On one side, so these are the words of Jesus, right? On one side, clear, definite moral teaching. On the other, claims which, if not true, are those of a megalomaniac compared with whom Hitler was the most sane and humble of men. Lewis is a contemporary of Hitler. He's writing this in World War II. There is no halfway house, and there is no parallel that should be in other religions. If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, are you the son of Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would have first rent his clothes and then cut off your head. If you had asked Confucius, are you heaven? I think he would probably have replied, remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. <laughs> the idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. In my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. We may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, and adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose, law, whose love is wounded in every sin. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God and then listen to this conclusion. Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I don't know a, a better summary of the challenge that's in front of us when we're dealing with the person of Jesus than what Lewis lays out. This is from a collection of different texts, and I can make this available to folks if they want, because there's a lot here, but Again, I'll, I'll put a little plug-in for mere Christianity. Um, it's really worth digesting. So there's a set of things that um, Lewis brings up that um, we could go into a little bit more next week, especially some of the claims that he makes about himself. But I, I want to mention there's a fourth option which has become um, much more prevalent right now, and especially on... Um, College campuses, uh, including Catholic campuses, uh, and it's become kind of a trendy <coughs> thing with dealing with Jesus. And that's the option uh, that goes like this. Jesus probably never called himself God. This means that he doesn't have to be either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. He could be a first century Palestinian Jew who had a message to proclaim other than his own divinity. That comes from a guy named Bart Ehrman, who's uh, made a lot of money selling a lot of books. 
So he uh, acknowledges Lewis's trilemma, and his way of dealing with it is to say, no, there's actually a fourth option, and the fourth option is that um, in one way or another, uh, what it comes down to is the Gospels just really aren't reliable. So it goes back to this understanding that here's this man whose um, existence is um, really not up for debate, but who somehow along the strand of, you know, decades goes from being just this simple peasant who said some really cool things, who just for some reason just got tragically crucified, uh, to becoming the son of God. And he uses as his, uh, one of the ways of justifying this, um, what we referred to last week, the, the telephone game, right? So this little game that we all played when we were children. So I tell you something here, and it just kind of follows around the room. And by the time it gets to Charlotte, it's a completely different story. And we all know this, and we just expect this to be true, right? I mean, like, we tell stories to children, and, and we know that by the time it goes around the room, it will not be the same. And so we project that onto first century Middle Eastern life, and we think clearly what we know is also the case of what they did. The problem with that is we're not an oral culture, and they were. And as I mentioned last week, if you were to do this in, in still some places in our country and in some places in other countries, mindful that most people in the world today are, or at least an enormous percentage, are still illiterate. So here, here's a book. Great, what do I do with it? I can fan myself. You know, I can use it to prop up something. I can open a door with it, but I don't know what to do with these lines all over it because I can't read. People who can't read don't know the telephone game. They would think we're morons. How can you not remember a simple story? And in fact, in many, or if, if not all, oral cultures, there are people whose responsibility is simply to know the stories and to hand them down. That's how we know things. And the person who has that role is an amazingly privileged person who does not play with a story because they're the ones who just communicate who we are, where we came from, what we're about. But Ehrman tries to draw on this. The, the best response to this kind of nonsense that I know of um, is from a guy named Brant Petrie. Um, this is a really worthwhile book. Uh, it's called The Case for Jesus, The Biblical and Historical Evidence for Christ. Um, I want to use it a little bit tonight just because uh, I think it's got a, a great um, summary uh, at the end of his book in response to what it is that's claimed here. So this is what Petrie writes. So th th this is the, basically the end of the book, right? So if you're going to hold to the theory that Jesus never claimed to be God, you'd better be committed to eliminating a lot of historical evidence. In fact, eliminating evidence may be the most consistent feature of the theory. Think about it. In order to hold the idea that the Gospels are the anonymous products of an early Christian game of telephone, you have to eliminate all the manuscript evidence for the titles of the Gospels. Eliminate the external evidence from ancient Christian sources and their pagan opponents. Eliminate the literary parallels between the Gospels and ancient biographies. He has a beautiful chapter in here on just how um, almost identical the way the Gospels are written um, with how um, biographies of the ancient uh, people would have been written at the time, or were written at the time. Eliminate the passages in which the Gospels themselves insist that they are telling you what actually said and did. There's a constant claim in the Gospels that this is written by eyewitnesses, or that this is written by people who themselves are saying, I was not an eyewitness to this, but I am basing this on what I have heard from those who were. Eliminate the internal and external evidence evidence that the Gospels were written in within the lifetime of the Apostles. Likewise, in order to hang on to the theory that Jesus never claimed to be God, you have to eliminate the entire Gospel of John and what it tells us about who Jesus claimed to be. 
you need to eliminate the passages in the synoptic gospels. That's the other three gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels because they follow a similar path uh, or itinerary of Jesus' life in which Jesus takes the divine name I am and speaks he, as if he is the divine son of man. Eliminate all the miracles in which Jesus does what only the God of the Old Testament can do. And eliminate all the evidence that Jesus was both repeatedly accused of blasphemy and condemned to death for blasphemy because of who he claimed to be. As uh, someone put it once, if Jesus is such a nice guy and a good man, how did he end up on a cross? Um, I think the comment was something like, who in the world would crucify Captain Kangaroo? And some of you have no idea who he is because you are so young. <laughs> but I remember Captain Kangaroo. This is still Petrie. And that is to say nothing of eliminating the evidence that Jesus, the evidence, huh? The evidence that Jesus' tomb was actually empty, that he actually appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, and that he fulfilled the biblical prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, the kingdom of God, and the conversion of the Gentile nations. In other words, in order for the theory that Jesus never claimed to be God to be correct, you have to keep eliminating all of the evidence that doesn't fit the theory. Now, of course, there's nothing to stop a person from trying to make all of this evidence disappear. Lots of people do it. Some of them are scholars. But I, for one, can't. It just isn't good history. It makes far more historical sense to me to conclude that the reason the idea that Jesus never claimed to be divine has to eliminate so much evidence for the theory to work is that the theory is wrong. And not just wrong about the details, it's wrong about the big questions. How we got the Gospels, who Jesus claimed to be, and why it matters. So that's Petrie in his book, The Case for Jesus. There's another um, worthwhile little book called The Real Jesus, subtitled The Misguided Quest for the Historical Jesus and the Truth of the Traditional Gospels. This is published by uh, an author named Luke Timothy Johnson. Uh, and uh, it's, an, it's another great compliment to uh, Petrie's book. It's a little bit older than Petrie's book, but one of the claims that uh, Johnson just continues to remind us of, like, what do you do with historical claims before a camera? I mean, history is dependent on testimony. Histi history is dependent upon witnesses. The key question, I mean, you weren't there when Washington crossed the Delaware, <laughs> and there's no video of it. So how do, how do we know history? We know history from people who claim to have been witnesses to it, right? And so the question you always want to ask people who claim to tell you something is, are you, are you believable? Are you credible? And the argument would be made about the apostles that, in fact, there is nobody more credible than the apostles because the apostles testify to their credibility by laying down their lives and dying, not just dying, dying in horrific fashion. And not just dying in horrific fashion, but as they're being killed, praying for and loving the people who are killing them. That's extraordinary. They didn't drive trucks into people on a sidewalk yelling at them. They didn't throw bombs into arenas screaming at them. They didn't pull out a automatic weapons from the 32nd floor to hotel room like we just saw. Their lives were taken, and as they were taken violently from them, they loved. They forgave the people who were actually killing them. If they're not believable, I don't know who's believable. He mentions... Uh, just a little bit earlier, he talks about uh, to say nothing of the evidence that Jesus' tomb was actually empty. So, this is not a small book. But, um, if you really want to read something, uh, I, I think it's the greatest book ever written on the resurrection um, by a man named N.T. Wright. He's an Anglican bishop. Uh, this is it. It's called The Resurrection of the Son of God. 
uh, I'll warn you, it's long. Um, but so, like, so great authors do what? Right? Great, here's the only way to, to, to argue. Um, you let truth lead. And then you just follow it. Right? And so at least in my life, over and over again, especially when I was younger, I just realized, okay, I think I'm wrong. <laughs> what, what I wanted to be true isn't true on whatever issue or whatever direction my life was going, whatever it would be. So if I want to live with integrity, I want to follow the truth, no matter what it will do for me. When Ask Father Prentice somehow, sometime how he got into the Catholic Church. Father Prentice was an evangelical pastor. I used to live with him 30 years ago. He was anything but Catholic. <laughs> and the idea that he would somehow be Catholic is um, somewhere between astounding and laughable to me. But he... He, in his humility, got to where he is, not only being in the church, but being a priest, by simply following truth, no matter the cost, even if it meant leaving his livelihood. He pastored a church. And he realized at a certain point, I don't think I can continue to do what I'm doing with integrity. I think I have to become Catholic. And he did. That's remarkable to me. But that's what happens when, you've, when you come to grips with truth. And again, we, we, we just aren't used to thinking about f matters of faith as having anything to do with truth. We're, we're so accustomed, go back a couple of weeks ago, to thinking of faith as opinion. Well, I believe this, you believe that, and isn't that great? You know, that's just insane. I mean, that, that, that's not a way to, you, you don't, that's not what we're claiming as Christians. It's not just, I don't know, I just close my eyes and I just believe it's there. I don't know, I don't understand, but it's there. Like, that, that ain't why I think Jesus is alive. Not only because of my own experience of knowing him, but also because of the evidence that I can look at historically, which leads me to the conclusion that the only single historically plausible explanation for the growth of Christianity is because Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified and died, and was buried, was seen visibly by people after he died, including people who didn't believe in him, most especially a guy named Paul, who hated Jesus and hated Christians so much that he was killing them. There is no other historically plausible explanation for the growth of Christianity. And so people say things like, as you were saying, well, I just, I don't believe dead people can come back from the grave. That's fine. You can actually believe that. That's not a neutral claim. You've already entered the discussion with a presupposition that certain things can't happen. Namely, I don't think miracles are real. Again, that's a valid position to hold. It's not neutral. It's not objective. I'm not willing to just go, I'll go anywhere. If I'm looking at the data and it's in front of me and it looks like this is the only logical explanation, I think Holmes used to say over and over again, when you've ruled out whatever, it's got to be the, impl the implausible has to be the only thing that can be there. Even if it's that implausible that a man who is dead is alive again. And right, this is a long way of saying that N.T. Wright's book is um, really worth reading. Okay. So let me add one more thing if I can. And then we'll, um, we'll stop for tonight and we'll take some questions on this if we want or we'll go home early. I don't care. Don't you love it when a meeting gets done early? So um, in um, literature, there's such a thing known as, as uh, textual criticism. So textual criticism, here's, here's that really trusted source known as Wikipedia. Here's how t uh, Wikipedia defines Textual criticism, a branch of textual scholarship, philology, and literary criticism that's concerned with the identification of textual variants in either manuscripts or printed books. So what's textual criticism? You're always trying to look at, uh, when you're looking at a text, how close is what we're looking at to the original, and how many copies of it do we have? And the closer it is to the original, and the more copies you have of it, the, the more weight you've got towards something being 
um, true. With me? Or, or reliable, we could say. Okay. So here's a little interesting chart. So these are, I'm going to walk through a series of works. These are all historical works. Maybe Joe can counter this. I don't know or anybody else who teaches in university. By and large, all of these would be acknowledged to be um, very reliable historical sources. So Herodotus. Here's what, um, none of this is going to come from a Christian source. It's from a collection of different historical sources and whatnot. But so um, here's, here's a summary of Herodotus. Before Herodotus, no writer had ever made such a systematic, thorough study of the past or tried to explain the cause and effect of its events. After Herodotus, historical analysis became an indispensable part of intellectual and political life. Scholars have been following in Herodotus's footsteps for 2,500 years. So he wrote uh, in the late part of the 5th century BC. The earliest copy that we have is from 900 AD. That's a time lapse of 1,300 years. And we got eight copies. And we would say about him that we have followed in his footsteps for 2,500 years and his historical analysis became an indispensable part of intellectual and political life. Thucydides is another one of the ancient historians, right? Lives in the uh, roughly the same time as Herodotus. Here's what uh, another website says about him. He chronicled nearly 30 years of war and tension between Athens and Sparta. His history of the Peloponnesian War set a standard for scope, concision, and accuracy that makes it a defining text of the historical genre. Unlike his near contemporary Herodotus, author of the other great ancient Greek history, Thucydides' topic, say that five times real fast, was his own time. He relied on the testimony of eyewitnesses and his own experiences as a general during the war. So here's another guy writing another chronicle of histories who again would be acknowledged as having, um, being reliable and a great source for what it is that we're dealing with at that time. The earliest copy again is from the year 900. It's again 1300 years and we got eight copies. Tacitus. So Tacitus is a, a Roman historian. He dies around 120. Here's how another description. Tacitus, by the way, has one of the fullest descriptions of what it was that happened uh, at the time of Nero to the Christians. So Tacitus is the one who describes the persecutions in which St. Peter dies. He talks about how Nero, um, um, how the fire takes place in Nero, uh, or in Rome at the time of Nero and that how Nero blames the Christians for starting the fire in Rome, which destroys three-quarters of the ancient city, which was mostly built out of wood. And so to take the attention off of himself, Tacitus finds, or um, Nero finds a scapegoat, the scapegoat of the Christians. Thereby, Nero starts the first systematic persecution um, by the Roman Empire of Christianity. He, Tacitus goes on to describe how Nero held games in what was called the the Circus of Caligula and Nero, which was and the place where St. Peter's is now built. It was across the Tiber River, which was outside the city walls of Rome. It was a, a burial ground, but it was also a circus, not a like tent circus. Um, think Ben-Hur, that's a circus, right? So they would do chariot races, animal exhibitions, things like that. And in the descriptions, Tacitus talks about how Nero held games in the circus. They went on for weeks. Um, the center piece of the games was the um, execution of Christians, and he talks about how Christians were killed in three ways. They were either sewn up inside of animal skins and then thrown out into the arena where they were torn apart by wild dogs, or they were dipped in pitch alive, mounted on poles, and then burned alive so that the games could go around the clock and they were living lamps, or they were crucified. Tacitus tells us that. So dies in 120. Here's how one of the historical websites describes him. Roman orator, public official, probably the greatest historian and one of the greatest prose stylists who wrote in the Latin language. 
Among his works are the Germania, describing the Germanic tribes, and the histories concerning the Roman Empire from 69 to 96, and the later Annals. It's the Annals, I think it's book 14, which talks about the persecution of the Christians, dealing with the empire in the period from 14 to 68. So Tacitus is writing roughly around the year 100. The earliest copy we've got is from the year 1100. It's a gap of 1,000 years. We've got 20 copies. Caesar's Gallic Wars. So Caesar's writing early to uh, roughly around the time of Jesus, huh? 50 years or so before that. Here's how it's described. Caesar's Gallic War consists of seven parts or books, each devoted to one year of campaigning. For centuries, the Gallic War has been the first real Latin text written by a real Roman for children who were trying to master the ancient language. Caesar's language is not very difficult indeed. Cicero says about Caesar's Gallic Wars, the Gallic War is splendid. It is bare, straight, and handsome, stripped of rhetorical ornament like an athlete of his clothes. <laughs> There's nothing in a history more attractive than clean and lucid brevity. That's what Cicero says about this. And then the site goes on to say, although Caesar's bias is evident, this does not mean that the work has no value at all. The author concentrates on the military aspects of the war, and for the study of ancient warfare, the Gallic War remains one of the most important sources. The earliest copy we got is 900 AD. The time lapse is 950 years. We got 9 to 10 copies. One last one. So Livy's Roman history. So Livy dies around the year, um, roughly around the time of uh, Caesar. So maybe 10 years off from that. Um, with Tacitus and Sallust, considered one of the three great Roman historians. His history of Rome became a classic in his own lifetime and exercised a profound influence on the style and philosophy of historical writing down to the 18th century. That's when he wrote it. Earliest copy is 900, gap of 900 years. We got 20 copies. What's the point of all this? So none of these things is challenged by any serious scholar as being a value or of being a source that we would look at historically. How do they match up to the New Testament? So the New Testament is written between 40 and 100. The earliest copy we have is from 130, one of the oldest collections of the entire New Testament. One of the oldest fragments is actually the University of Michigan. A time lapse is 300 years for a complete version of the New Testament. We have 5,000 copies in Greek. We have 10,000 copies in Latin. And we have 9,300 copies in other languages. How could it possibly be that all the other sources that are up there are acknowledged to be historically reliable, and then all of a sudden this one, we just arbitrarily toss out? If this isn't reliable, then nothing in antiquity is reliable. Does that make sense? Yeah, go ahead. from antiquity, yeah. So, I share all that just because I find this to be um, an increasingly common issue for people. They, we, we just don't, um, for whatever reason, we don't trust things from long ago. And so charts like this, I think, are just helpful for me anyway. Maybe they're not for you, but they're helpful for me. And just looking at the data, and realizing, all right, uh, maybe I just need to reevaluate how I look at things. And this is so key because um, everything that we're going to do from here on in as we look at Jesus is going to come from the New Testament. And I don't want in the back of our minds the question to be, yeah, but is the New Testament credible? Is the New Testament reliable? And so for, this is kind of like building a base, if you will, this week so that next week we can actually rest something on top of it 
because next week we want to look at the data that's actually in the New Testament, most especially that's in the Gospels, what it is that Jesus actually says about himself. But for me, again, right now, with where we are in our culture and how people think or don't think, it, it's, a, it's helpful to answer the question now so that next week we're not sitting there going, yeah, but. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah? The, no, the time lapse is between when it was written and the oldest fragments that we have. Or the earliest copy that we have, right? The, 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 the textual evidence for the New Testament is overwhelming. Anybody familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls? A lot of us have heard about it. Maybe some of us haven't. Dead Sea Scrolls were this tremendously important find uh, shortly after World War II in Qumran, which is down by the Dead Sea, hence the name. And um, so the reason why the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the reasons why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so significant is because um, the, the Old Testament, which is what was found there, uh, which would just would have been the Hebrew Scriptures, is a thousand years older than the oldest copy that we had before that. A thousand years. Okay? So the copy from that's at the Dead Sea was found in Qumran is contemporary with Jesus. That was a thousand years older than anything we had. When you take what was there, what was found there, and you compare it with the oldest copy that we had, when you line it up and you do the, the analysis of the equivalency between the two, it's something like 98.2% or something like that. Someone can find the number, maybe it's a little bit less, but it's something remarkably close to that. See, we're, we're so predisposed, we come at these things with a bias, at least a lot of people in our culture do, with thinking, well, it's old, they probably made a bunch of mistakes, and you know, somewhere, somewhere along the line it went from Jesus died and was buried to Jesus died, was buried, and rose. I mean, it's probably just an easy copying mistake, right? Um, no. <laughs> uh, not at all. So what we'll, what we'll do next week is um, just start to rip apart some of the things that Jesus actually says about himself so that we don't uh, find ourselves being in the position of what Lewis says there are just an awful lot of people who are actually ignorant of the text. We don't want to be ignorant of the text. Because the whole decision to live as a disciple is going to be based on whether or not I'm going to surrender myself to Jesus. And I ain't surrendering myself to anybody who hasn't actually done that for me, who isn't God. But if that's, if that's the one who made the universe, and out of his love for me, he's become flesh, which, think about this, here's another Lewis image. So, we tend to be rather um, proud as men and women. I mean, we run the world, right? So we don't, I don't think, understand uh, what it could possibly mean to be true that God would become a man. Because, I mean, look at us. I mean, we're, we're, we're pretty cool, right? I mean, surely, God, I mean, that's not, that's not that humbling of an act. That was the reading last week at Mass, if you remember. Huh? Jesus did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself, took the form of a slave, being born of a woman, humbling himself, even going to the cross, accepting death, death on a cross. So what's it mean for God to become a man? Here's how Lewis put it. Lewis says, um, so imagine one day you just kind of like walk outside and maybe it's like now, it's going to rain tomorrow and it's going to rain and all these worms and slugs are going to come up out of the ground. And so you look down and you see these guys and you go, wow, that looks like a rather pathetic existence. Here's what I'm going to do. I think I'll become a slug. Yeah, I don't want them to just crawl around on the ground like that. That looks terrible. I want them to share in my life. So you decide to become a slug. And you leave this and you go to the ground. And you live with them. 
and you crawl with them, and you eat with them, and then you let them kill you. Who does this? I'll have a sign-up list in the back. Who in their right mind does this? Nobody does this. Who gives a flip about slugs? <laughs> right? <laughs> Here's the thing, though. The difference between you and I and slugs is nothing in comparison to the gap between you and I and God. If for no other reason than because you and I and slugs are all creatures, we might be made in the image and likeness of God and slugs aren't, but we're still all creatures. God is not a creature. God is the omnipotent Lord of heaven and earth who says, let there be light, and there's light. Try that someday. <laughs> See what happens. Walk out in the middle of the storm and say, shh. <laughs> See what happens. That's the Lord God. And the Christian claim, right, is that that God and Lord of heaven and earth out of love for you and me humbled himself and walked among us, allowed us to call him by name out of his, for some reason, passionate desire for us to share in his own abundant life for all eternity and even allowed us to take his life so that in the very process he could kill death. So one person summarized the gospel this way. So the gospel, most simply put, is simply this. The good news is that you are, I am, far, 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 far more important than you ever dared to imagine. Because God has died for you. And he would rather die than live without you. And if that's true, then I'll surrender to him. And that's what this is all about. Okay? All right. I don't know if there's any questions on anything that we've done, or if, Bob, if you've got announcements that you want to make, but I'm happy to take some time right now, or we can kind of let Father uh, Dave build on this next week, and then we can go. Um, we can build on that and kind of take stuff all together. I'm happy to take some. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give you one. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so the Old Testament is written down, but still the Old Testament again. Um, so uh, much like if you went to Mass today, the reading from the first reading is from the book of Nehemiah. Um, and without getting lost in this right now, so Nehemiah, find, they find at the time of Nehemiah um, a copy of the law, which is the scriptures, and they read it, or rather someone reads it to the people because the people can't read, right? So at a certain point, the, um, um, the stories of whatever kind, right, whether it's histories or poetry or wise sayings, whatever they are, um, are written down. But they're written down to preserve, but they're still told orally most of the time because, again, first of all, you don't have books because you have no printing press. So books are extremely expensive and they take a long time to make. So um, that's one issue. Two, you, you probably couldn't read again, so you're still learning things always orally. Does that make sense? Um, but it does get codified by all means. But it gets codified because um, someone would read from the law to people. But in small towns and whatnot, maybe you had a copy of the scriptures, maybe you didn't. But you still knew the scriptures because of people telling the stories. Does that help or no? I think I am. I, I would say it's a big distinction. 
between belief and think. So it's, I've, I've engaged my mind. Yeah, so, so they all three can't, so just the law of non-contradiction means that all three of them can't be right. Jesus can't be both a bad prophet, just a prophet, and the eternal son of God. Right? That just doesn't make any sense. The earth can't be round, flat, square, rectangular, oblong. It, it is whatever it is. But you can believe the world is flat. That's totally up to you. You'd just be wrong. <laughs> right? So in a similar way, we'd say the same thing about faith. Like, I, I can certainly believe whatever I want to believe, but that doesn't make what I believe true. We live in a culture where we think we can make reality true by what we believe. That's insane. That's just not rational. So what do we want to do? I want to look at the data. So what's the data? What is the evidence? And here's, I think this is where it comes down oftentimes. Uh, I just heard some guy say this recently. So typically in years past, what we would do is we would get into apologetics right now. So we'd look at the arguments for why Jesus isn't a good man or a lunatic, but he is in fact the Lord. Or he's just a good man. Um, in years past, that might have worked for some people. Increasingly, or, or with less frequency, it works now. Mainly because um, the way the guy put it was this. I love this expression. Um, love builds a bridge across which truth can pass. In other words, before I can get into the argument, I probably have to convince you that I actually care about you. And that might take years. And so the reason why a lot of people aren't Christian and a lot of people aren't Catholic is because of Christians and because of Catholics. Yeah. Um, so it depends on the person, right? But so in, in that situation with someone, you say, well, you should be able to give an explanation. The scripture itself tells you you should be able to give an explanation for the hope that's yours. Can you? Because you should know by now, based on what we've said even just in a couple of weeks, if your reason for I'm Catholic is because my mom and dad were Catholic and I was raised that way, that doesn't cut it. You can't become Catholic that way. Because you, you can become Irish that way, right? You can't become Catholic that way. The only way to become Catholic is to make a choice. And the only reason to make the choice is because I don't just believe, I also think. It's faith and reason working together because they both create the same object and the object is truth. Does that help? Does that make sense? But again, this is the, the these are... These are the obstacles that we face over and over again in our culture, right? And, you know, unfortunately, because, Christ, uh, because religion has become synonymous with many people with violence uh, and genuine intolerance, um, it's, it's given fodder for all sorts of people to attack it. That's why it's, a, it's imperative for us to never resort to violence and to do everything we do in charity and to learn and explain what it is that we're trying to talk about in a way that's actually coherent and cogent. Yeah, is that Dave Arabin that's at the front? Yeah. yeah, so thanks for mentioning that, actually. So, um, yeah, at the very beginning of the Bibles that we gave you is um, uh, a very short document from um, something which is known as Vatican II. Um, so without getting into the details on that. So there's a, there's a series of documents that came out of um, this gathering of bishops and others back in the 1960s, 50s and 60s. And one of the most important documents um, is this one. It's, it's also the shortest of the four main documents. And it's on how we understand um, not just Scripture, but the transmission of the Word of God, which is more than just Scripture. Uh, it includes what we would call oral tradition, which is a capital T. 
Um, so I would highly recommend looking at that because it helps you understand um, some things that we we haven't got into yet, but we will at some point, uh, hopefully anyway, like how do you read the Old Testament? Because the Old Testament has some really difficult passages in it, um, like stoning people. Are we still supposed to do that? And why not? So it helps me understand that I read, I always read, in, in this case, I always read the Old Testament in light of the New. So the, the New is kind of like the decoder ring that helps me understand the Old, because the whole Old Testament is pointing to somebody. It's pointing to Jesus. So Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that's in there. Um, but it's very worth reading. It's only, what, maybe 12, 14 pages in the Bibles that we gave you. So for your own edification, that'd be great.